All right, so the intertestament time period is what we want to look at this morning. And this is just a visual uh, Bible survey from uh, Ken Boa, etc. And if you look at it, which I can't even see, I can't read it from back here. So um, you guys probably can't either, can you? All right, we're just going to skip that, okay? Um, <laughs> let's hope we don't keep saying that this morning, right? So, yeah, the new room, right? Anyway, the, the main point of this is simply... If you look at the very top, you can see where it says Ezra over on the left side. So we talked about that last week. All right, so you can kind of put in, in mind uh, what this is doing. is It's carrying you through the, the time periods from 700 B.C. to 100 A.D. of what's going on in the Bible story. All right, um, the kingdoms of the world. All right, A-B-P-G-I-R. What's that stand for? Yes, a brief pause, God is ready. That's right. So this is the first part, from 700 to 331 B.C., all right? The prophet Daniel lived and, and wrote during the early Babylonian period and into the beginning of the Persian period. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 contain vivid predictions of the four great empires that would rule Israel. Um, Babylon, the Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. They, this was all fulfilled during the intertestament time period. So Daniel also predicted a renewed Roman Empire with a final godless ruler who would be destroyed by the Messiah, after which the Messiah and his saints would rule. And so there's obviously different um, thoughts on that between the different theological views for eschatology, pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, all that type of stuff, which obviously we're not getting into for this course. My point here is that this covers the ABP part. Of, of that acronym, a brief pause, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, which we've already covered. So uh, today what we're going to look at is we're going to pick up where this ends. This ends, as you can see, around 331 BC, and we're going to go from the next portion. And so in Daniel uh, chapter 7, you have these images of these beasts, okay? And then in Daniel chapter 2, on the right side of the screen, you have the statue. Well, Daniel 2 and 7, they, they correspond to each other. They, they cover the same uh, material in different image form. And basically what God did is he gave Daniel the outline of uh, what was going to be coming down the pike in world history. And so that gets laid out and it's further explained right here on the chart for you. So the head of gold, which corresponds to the winged lion in chapter 7, refers to Babylon. The chest and the arms of silver, which corresponds with the bear in chapter 7, and the ram in chapter 8, is the Medes and the Persians. The belly and the thighs of bronze is the winged leopard of chapter 7, chapter 8, and that is Greece. And so you continue on down the chart, and you can, you can see the legs of iron, the feet of clay, corresponds with the beast with the ten horns, and then uh, Rome, etc. And then, you know, the stone, of course. And so, as this was laid out to Daniel many years before, and the world powers that we've already discussed, they're just summarized in this chart for you, which also, it's in a PowerPoint, but I believe the world powers chart I up uploaded as a Microsoft Word doc then I'm on one um, page. For the PowerPoint for today, I broke it up into three sections corresponding to the areas that we're looking at, this part 
being the review. So for you to understand in your mind, um, this really would be a good cheat sheet for you to print off that Microsoft Word document because if you look in the left, the years, 700 to 600, Assyria, 6 to 5, and obviously I've rounded these, and that's to, to make it more memorable. Um, Babylon, 5 to 4 is Persia, um, 4 to 3 is again Persia, uh, but with some different rulers and some different um, important events for you to note. So continuing on along, we, we move now to the part we're going to look at today, the GIR, the GUR on the ABP GIR, the Greece, Independence, and Rome, 331 BC until 7 BC. The last Persian king um, in the Old Testament is Darius, um, Darius the Persian in Nehemiah 12.22. The last canonical prophet was Malachi, who probably wrote around 430 B.C. Malachi 3-4 predicts the coming of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And we know that Nehemiah died by about 407 B.C., or at least had ceased to be a governor of Judah, since the Elephantine papyri, which we talked about last week, names the governor of Judah um, as somebody else. So... We should date the intertestament time period some, somewhere around 420 uh, to the, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist around 7 BC, give or take. And so we're going to look specifically at uh, Greece and Rome, you know, and specifically Alexander the Great is where we'll spend most of our time with Greece. So as a quick summary for you, so this is part two of that Microsoft Word document that I've uploaded for you is the year 300s to 200s is going to be, all right? In fact, they're actually going to go all the way down to 167. It's just divided up because the the Grecian Empire gets developed. It begins with Philip of Macedon and then his son Alexander, okay, the friction up there. And then the and then the Seleucids, all right? And both of them, they split. We'll talk about them in a minute if you're not. We have a whole section on them. So from Nehemiah to Jesus, okay, and I've put in bold for you the same thing we're talking about the Persian rule the Greek rule and then under Greek Alexander the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and then independence of Asmonians rule is going to uh, pick up after that so this is what we're talking about from Maya on to Jesus with, with Greece all right and so the the Grecian Empire Philip of May um, the, the area of Greece was considered a tiny backwoods kingdom by the rest of the world um, and by other uh, areas n near Greece, but Philip was um, he he was able to forge the empire into national identities instead of just city states. And for his son Alexander, he got the best educators, um, Socrates, etc. He was murdered in 336 BC, and so we are not going to spend a whole lot of time on him. But he is the intro to one of the things though that he did have is the the Macedonian phalanx, this was basically a human um, tank. It was a way of using their shields uh, to basically be invincible. They, they, would, and they would move in step with each other, um, nobody moving out of formation. And, and really, uh, I mean, it's like a turtle shell. It's, it's a, it was a human tank. And this really helped him uh, taking over of the known world at the time. And Alexander, of course, is going to continue that and even perf perfect it to an additional degree. And so, this here um, was just one of the. So Alexander, he was big as his Bible and Achilles as his hero. All right, gray eyes, slight build, blonde hair, clean shaven. Um, at seven years old, he was cross-examining the Persian envoys that, um, at the empire. So even, even as a child, you can already begin to see 
that um, he was not just your, your normal child. At nine years old, uh, the story is told about him and his horse that uh, there was a stallion that his father and his father's trainers were having trouble with and they were going to get rid of it. And he said, let me try. Give me a try. And so at nine years old, he tames the stallion. It becomes his war horse for most of his campaigns. So um, again, you see the talents that he has in that area. Aristotle, the 343, by Philip to tutor Alexander. So the influence seen in Alex's um, scientific interest and his entourage, even when he went into battle, he would bring geologists and biologists with him, and they would collect specimens all, all through their travels. He um, also brought the Iliad and with him on his campaigns. It would be the precursor for what Alexander does with the idea of Hellenization and the spread of the Greek culture that, that gets spread all through the world. So Alexander... Um, at 16 years old, he is uh, commanding the Macedonian heavy uh, cavalry at the Battle of Carmen uh, in 338 BC. So at 16, he, he's commanding a regiment of, of the army there. Um, by age 20, he is king because his dad is now dead. And so he's already had experience. He's already been being brought up in this uh, environment and being prepared for his role. Um, they dominated the Persians. He refined the phalanx and, and the cavalry and then uh, invaded Asia. He conquered Achaia in the first year and headed on to Asia Minor. You can see in this next map here um, the, the campaigns. Okay, just follow the yellow line. Go from the top up there where it says Macedonia. And you can just see the yellow line of how he is going through the whole known area. The big skirmishes with the, the yellow and red little uh, fire blowing up thing there. The Sicilian Gates was this, this area with, with, uh, that Alexander... Let me find my note on that page. One second here. Probably put it away. This is why I need my podium where I can spread out all my stuff. <laughs> Both this and the Battle of Issus. Are, are, are connected together. The Elean Plain and the Issus Plain comprise a narrow, fairly isolated, horseshoe-shaped lowland, and they lie adjacent to the sea in our Hems mountain range in the north and the west, and then another mountain range on the east. So access in and out of these plains is very difficult, except for three places. Uh, there's a northwest gate known as the Gulak Pass, and in antiquity it's known as the Cilician Gates. That's this. So that's one of the ways in through this mountainous area. There's also a northeastern gate, so this, the one on the screen is the northwestern gate, all right? And then there was a, a southern gate, known as the Belen Pass or the Syrian Gates in um, ancient times. So the Sicilian Gates here are going to lead him in onto this battle. So Alexander the Great set out from Gordian in the summer of 333, marching south Galatia and western Cappadocia as far as the city of uh, Tyana. And from there, he was able to travel on what later became the Via or the Way of Taurus, okay? Negotiated the Taurus range via the Cilician Gates, all right? And then he takes control of Cilicia and the town of Tarsus. And then he went into um, 
the waters, which was really cold, probably wasn't a, a smart move, but um, that gave them and his soldiers a bunch of uh, sickness and chills and tropical fever, which um, wasn't good. He almost died, but he didn't die. Um, but th this is that path. So moving on from there, this is another picture of, of the same path. You can see that the, the mountainous region, and this is the, the way through it. And so this here is the actual um, battle that ensues um, related to the pass. So you can kind of look at the screen. It's probably not large for you to be able to uh, read it from where you're sitting there. But you've got the, the green lines and um, the, the red being Alexander. He's coming down and uh, going through all of his. You can see the some of the skirmishes, the, the circle points, but on this map, the, the skirmishes are the, the zigzag black lines um, over by the Gulf of Alexandra um, with number six, the green and the, and the red come together is uh, one, of, one of these skirmishes there. But anyways, um, so he returned to the battle scene at, um, at Issus here. And this is where he, he engages with Darius, okay? So Darius of Persia. So this is uh, important because of the interaction between, think about it, Persia is all the way over where? We got three main geographic zones we deal with, right? You got Egypt, you got the Syria-Palestine area, and you got Mesopotamia. Where, where is Persia? Mesopotamia. And and where is Alexander coming from? He's coming from way up northwest, okay, on our map. So you you got these two guys from two ends of the empire, all right, that are basically battling for um, the area. And it's it's a matter of who is going to be king of the world. This is a relief of him and his battles, okay, on his horse um, and conquering there he is um, this here is simply a um, a close-up of the Panaris Valley and related to this this battle with um, at, at Isis all right so Alexander is victorious he captures uh, Darius and his, his family and he is on an entourage through the, the whole area to become an empire all right, same thing there. So, yeah, someone can just kill that bug running across the table by Phoebe's computer. Yeah, someone just killed that thing. There you go. completely. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, where you don't want it is inside your computer. Laying eggs. <clears throat> All right, so the Phoenician warship here. <laughs> yeah, we don't want them in our bags. Either, right? <laughs> Take them home with us. Yeah. All right, so the Phoenician warship. Um, and then you can see it on the images uh, that um, were, were made on the, the, the coinage that you see on the screen as well. So Alexander continued on, 
he's obviously not going to stop at, at that one battle. We're just highlighting some of these areas. There's no way you're going to remember all this stuff. And the point is simply to demonstrate how Alexander conquers the known world and what it is going to mean for the study of particularly the New Testament and what took place between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So he um he has the Tyre, okay? So remember, Tyre is over on the, the coast of the Mediterranean. So it is in the area of which one, Phoenicia or Philistia? You tell me. Phoenicia, right, it's the top part, okay? Philistia is at the bottom, Phoenicia is at the top, okay? So it's the area of uh, Phoenicia. All right, so these are Phoenicians, okay? To, to secure the flank of his kingdom, okay, Alexander marched south to take Palestine and Egypt. The only places that resisted were Tyre and Gaza, okay? So Tyre gets sieged for seven months, okay? Remember, the siege is where you surround the city. You either surrender or starve, right? So they fell in July 29, 332 B.C. after seven-month siege. Well, interestingly enough, what does Ezekiel 26, 2 and 3 tell us about Tyre? He says, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me, I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. And so as part of the fulfillment of these prophecies, that many nations would come against Tyre, her walls and towers would be broken down, the debris of the city would be removed, Nebuchadnezzar will attack, stones and timbers were thrown in the waters, Tyre would be a bare rock and a place for spreading of nets, and the city wouldn't be rebuilt. Well, Alexander is part of God's fulfillment of that. After destroying Tyre, Alex went south to Gaza. Okay, Now, Gaza is a Philistine city, right? One of the five main Philistine cities. Um, it's on a steep hill rising 100 foot above the plain with 150 foot walls, the base of which are solid mountain. So you can imagine, if you live there, you think that this is an impregnable fortress. So he built moving towers to roll up to the walls, allowing the archers to snipe basically those on the wall. So think about it. you got 150 foot walls, okay? You have solid mountain in the bottom. There's, there's really nothing you can do. And who's on top of the walls? Well, the people you're trying to take are at the top of the walls. And they're shooting down at you or they're throwing stuff down at you, right? And so to even the playing field, he builds these towers to put himself up high like they are, and then to get high enough so that he can actually, I use the word snipe, but obviously, you know, it's not a gun. So, bows and arrows, right? And so, you can shoot them. There's another one, middle of the table. What's up with these torches? It's on there top of your computer, Eric. Nah. <laughs> Computer's broke, but so is the brooch. <laughs> All right. Looks like it. It's because we turned off the lights. Yes. T turn them back on. No, we can't see. Turn the, turn the back one on, see if it helps. No, it's fine. Um, we'll so it was a two-month siege, all right? And Rebecca's like, nope, turn the lights on. Go ahead, right there. <laughs> Rebecca, that switch right there. You can still see. The, yes. Yeah, that's fine. So meanwhile, so while the siege is going on, 
So he left his men and he heads over to Jerusalem and gives them semi-independence. They basically saw what was going on. Um, they weren't going to fight, so there was basically a surrender. But they also showed him, okay, the book of Daniel and the prophecies written that one of the Greeks would destroy the Persian Empire. And so he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yep, that's me. And so they had kind of an amicable, I don't know if that's the best word, but, you know, they had a, a peaceful surrender, etc., with him. So the quote there from the Antiquities, that's Josephus, okay, a Jewish historian who became a, a writer under the Romans in a later time period, writes about that. And so that is how it went down with, with Gaza and Jerusalem. So... Alexander, um, after a while, began to exhibit some changes. After conquering Tyre and Gaza and then the surrender of Jerusalem, he spent the winter in Egypt and he ordered the building of the city of Alexandria, which becomes famous in its own right. The Samaritans desired to get in on the Jewish favoritism, however, and um, they tried to have a similar deal with them that, that the Jews did, but there was a revolt in Samaria that led to its destruction because the Greeks uh, attacked it back. And the Samaritans then moved their civil and religious center to Shechem. Okay, Alexander then defeated Darius at um, or the Persians at 331 BC, and later declared himself king and son of Ammon. Okay, that's from Egypt. Okay, and he adopted the attire of the Oriental king and became increasingly cruel. So this is the change that goes on. Um, I don't know if it was the pride of his victories, which is normal you can see that in nebuchadnezzar you, you see that all through history with rulers um but anyways he began to change and he tried to push into to india his army eventually refused to go any further and he was forced to head back home um, his lifestyle became less favorable he became more of a, a tyrant and cruel to some degree and uh that all kind of i don't know moved, moved downhill to some degree his um reputation so these, these are just some different mosaics um images uh, of war etc and so the next one is his marriage though so he he married all right um but he died very quickly thereafter before their child was even born and so um uh, not a whole lot uh oh he he died um I don't know. A rumor has um, that he was poisoned, murdered. Um, yeah. They don't really know how he died. Well, there you go. Rumors, right? He just died an early death. Um, but the thing is, in, in, tw in 12 years, he conquered the entire world. In 12 years. So, um, phenomenally amazing what was accomplished in that time period so after his marriage and the death of the child so now we have a huge question okay so he's dead well who is the heir and what's going to happen and what was the impact his child of this too? so no not yet so what was some of the impact well the term hellenization is the term that's used so that's a term that you really should know and it has to do with spreading these ideas throughout the known world um, from Greece to Persia. Well, uh, one of the things he did was he took people from Greece and he integrated them in Persia, both in the military and uh, by marriage. 
So what that did is it uh, broke down national barriers. Um, one of the ways to reduce uh, ethnocentrism, nationalistic pride, patriotism, etc., is uh, to mix cultures. Because you can only have super patriotism if you have a unified single culture. Does that all make sense? All right. So by doing that, he is bridging all these and bringing them together. He conquered everything but Rome and Carthage. The language of Greece, um, the Greek language, was spread all over. That's why you have Greek being spoken. That's why in 250 BC the Bible is translated. The literature, because of the city of Alexandria, that becomes home to a huge massive library and uh, the promotion of books, reading, writing, etc. Uh, commerce, notice these all start with C's, conquer, culture, commerce. So commerce, both Alexandria and Antioch for trade. And then collective specimens. This is the um, uh, biology and geography type stuff of science that I mentioned earlier to you. That he actually had guys with him that were doing this on his journeys. And then, you know, he died in, in 323 BC. So if you look at this map, this was his world. Look at it. Okay, it is massive. Um, the the entire known world he he controlled. So after his death, the generals. Okay, his son was um, obviously not able to rule. He died before his son was even born. And so, who's going to rule? Well, he had several generals. Okay. So that is what's going to happen. Cassander murdered Alex's widow and his infant son. So his son will never rule. So Cassander was one of his generals. His son's name was Alex IV. This resulted in different generals claiming to rule. There were seven years of fighting. And after seven years of fighting, there was four of them that emerged most powerful. Antigonus, he is um, called One-Eyed. He was 59. He took Anatolia, the north Syria and Mesopotamia. He was the strongest of the four. And so you can see right in the middle of the screen, Antigonus, okay? Um, the others kind of allied against him. Ptolemy, he was the illegitimate, illegitimate half-brother of Alex um, via Philip, his father, one of his seven bodyguards, okay? He took Egypt, Palestine, Phoenicia, South Syria, all right? So you can see him down at the bottom of your screen, Ptolemy's. Now, Ptolemy's general, his top general, was a guy named Seleucus. That's going to be very important. Okay, Cassander, okay, you can see him up on the top left. He was 31. His father, Antip Antipater, was the regent of Macedonia during Alex's absence. When his father died, he took the throne of Macedonia, allying himself with Ptolemy. Then he married Alex's half-sister to form a tie with the royal family. All right, so you, so you can see these guys think this stuff through a little bit, right? They, they're playing the political game. Um, Lysimachus, or, or Lysimachus, one of Alex's bodyguards also, and generals, um, he was given Thrace to east of Macedonia. Um, so 15 years of wars left Ptolemies down at the bottom in Egypt and Seleucus in the north. Okay, so Antigonus is gone. You can kind of see Seleucus' name right there underneath Antigonus. And so, remember, Seleucus was originally the general of who? 
Ptolemy. Okay, so there's a split. All right, he decides I don't want to just be your your top dog general. I will want my own land. All right. Notice also these are all military guys that are that are taking over. All right. So um, those guys are going to become very important. Those two, the Ptolemies and Seleucids, which will become the the Seleucids. Okay. Those are your two key people after Alexander that are going to radically impact uh, the Jewish people during the intertestament time period okay so we're gonna look <clears throat> at the Ptolemies first you can see on this map so the Ptolemies down at the bottom section greenish area in Egypt and then you go up towards the the purple Syria and the, see the Seleucids okay now what is right in between both of them or where they both meet Israel. exactly and what does everybody always want Israel, that's why I'm okay. Exactly. So you can already anticipate. So what are we going to have? Well, we're going to have wars and conflicts between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids over Israel. And who's going to fall right in between the crossfire? Well, God's people are. All right. So the Ptolemies. Ptolemy Soter of Egypt. <clears throat> in 312, Ptolemy took advantage of the Jews' refusal to fight on the Sabbath, and he entered the city of Jerusalem without opposition. In general, the Jews enjoyed tolerance and peace during the 3rd century, but little in particular is known of, of the Jews here in Judah at this time. Apparently, they continued to live under the local rule of the high priest and sent annual tribute over to Egypt. And so, you can see he's taken on the, the garb of the Egyptians, and he's ruling from Egypt. Now, Ptolemy II, okay, some of the things that are related to him or his time period, okay, is the lighthouse that he built, the library at Alexandria, okay, that was expanded in, in a lot of books, etc. The Septuagint, so 250 BC, give or take, the Septuagint, which is, remember, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Most New Testament scholars believe that Paul mostly quoted the Septuagint and not the Hebrew Old Testament. So it became very important um, to first century and New Testament um, Christian and even Judaic life. And lastly, the war with the Seleucids that continues because they still want that piece of property. Okay? Now, <clears throat> so after Alexander... You have, as we mentioned, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, all right? And these four generals, who turned out to be just two primary ones, are, again, depicted right here before we move to the Seleucids. And you can see on, on the yellow, the Seleucid Empire on this map. And then on the lower left, the purple, which almost runs into the color of the Mediterranean Sea, um, the Ptolemies. The other ones, as we already mentioned, they didn't really make it, okay? So there were these other generals, but these are the two that became so powerful. And so uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and so we want to look now at the Seleucids, all right? So one of Ptolemy's commanders, okay, um, Seleucus, there's a typo in that first word, should be S-E-L, 
Seleucus, one of Ptolemy's commanders, had captured Babylon in 311 BC and he set himself up as sovereign, independent of Ptolemy. This dynasty became known as the Seleucid dynasty. As soon as Seleucus I split off from Ptolemy I in 311, the two dynasties fought with each other for control of Palestine. This fighting continued on and off for over 100 years. These wars were predicted in Daniel 11, where the king of the north represents the Seleucids and the king of the south, the Ptolemies, according to many people. Okay, So we're looking at the time period of 311 to about 163 BC um, going to be covered here. All right, this chart here simply lists the the rulers. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to um, memorize all, all of these rulers, but it's just here for your benefit so that you can uh, look at them, you know, if you have so need in the future. Not really for the test. So, Antiochus the third, okay, also called the Great. <clears throat> During the third century, the Seleucid Empire grew weaker until Antiochus III, the sixth king in line, took the throne. He was capable and ambitious, and he was able to assert his rule over much of Asia and to add the territory of Palestine. He founded the city of Antioch, Syria, as well. When Theodotus, the general for the Ptolemy IV, um, defected to Antiochus III, Antiochus attacked Ptolemy at Raphia. Because of brave leadership, Ptolemy was able to defeat the Syrians at that time. Ptolemy IV then died in 203 and was succeeded by the very young Ptolemy V. Antiochus III took advantage of his youth and defeated his army at Panium, which is now Caesarea Philippi, New Testament, in 198 BC. This began Syrian rule over Palestine. The Jews in Jerusalem received Antiochus cordially, and he seemed a generous conqueror, giving them many benefits. Um, the Romans had recently defeated uh, the Carthaginians. Carthaginians in the Second Punic Wars around 202 BC, um, towards the end of this time period, and then Hannibal uh, came to live under the protection of uh, them towards the end of this time period as well. So uh, Antiochus w was able to to rule uh, a, a large area, and he could have been a greater threat to the Romans. Um, but the Romans declared war against him. They chased him out of Greece. They defeated and captured him at Magnesia between Sardis and Smyrna. Rome stripped Antiochus III of Asia Minor and forced him to surrender his navy and his war elephants. And they also demanded a huge payment. What do we call that? When you have to pay another country? Tribute. Tribute. It's like taxes, but taxes are kind of in your own country, right? Yeah. Tribute. So, um... So for 12 years, he's paying this tribute money. Um, to ensure payment, they um, took one of his youngest sons as their hostage. That that will become Antiochus IV. So to meet the payment, he was forced, as were his successors, to now levy taxes on his own people, right? So to pay the tribute, you use taxes. Your people got to pay it, right? And he also plundered the temples. Eventually, this led to his death as he was murdered in an attempt to rob a temple in Elam. The thing about temples is that religious people don't like you stealing from their temples. And when they've had enough, well, they don't care that you're the man in charge. They, they killed him. So, that's what happened to him. It is a lot of drama, that is for sure. This whole time period. Um, really, probably all of human history is, but... So Antiochus IV, he is the Antiochus Epiphanes that you know of related to the biblical 
uh, storyline as well. Also called Antiochus the uh, Magnificent. 175 to 163. Is he the one that is referred to as the Antichrist? Yeah. Okay. Alright. Now, <clears throat> he is remembered as a very cruel and wicked persecutor of the Jews. Um, as a boy, he was taken, as I mentioned, as hostage to Rome, where he lived for 12 years. There, he further imbibed the Hellenistic spirit, and he learned a healthy respect for Roman power. When his father, Antiochus III, was murdered, he was succeeded uh, by his older son, Seleucus IV. Still desperately trying to get money, Seleucus tried to confiscate wealth from the Jerusalem temple, but the high priest, Ananias III, defended the temple and then traveled to Antioch to present his case. In 175 BC, as Antiochus was coming home from Rome, Seleucus IV was assassinated, making the younger brother, Antiochus IV, the king. So, as he's coming back from being a hostage, the other brother's killed, and so that makes him, welcome home, you're the king, kind of thing. All right? So, he proclaimed himself Epiphanes, which means God manifested. All right? While the high priest Onias III was in Antioch defending the rights of the temple, his brother Joshua, who used the Greek name Jason and favored Hellenism, paid a large bribe to Seleucus and was declared by him to be the new high priest. Jason immediately instituted a policy of pro-Hellenism. Now, that's all confusing, but what you need to understand is what Jason does. He built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Now, the gymnasium was a Greek thing. It was not a Jewish thing. So this is, what, what happens at this time period is, is really huge for understanding the New Testament. Um, you have two things. Now, I'll show you these charts in a little bit. But you, you have a response to Greece and you have a response to Rome. And in both, the response is the same. You either have a pro-group and you have an anti-group. Right? You have the people that are going to say, okay, these are the new people in charge. And we're going to do what we can. We're going to be compliant so that things go okay with us. Or they could have another reason. They might want some power positions. And the only way to get that is to work with them. And then you're going to have a group of people who are going to oppose it. Okay? So that's going to happen with, with Greece and with Rome. Well, when Jason brings in the, the gymnasium um, and the other Hellenistic aspects that really thrust people to the center to have to make a choice. Like you've got to vote. All right? And you've got to decide where you're going to stand. So... The, the issue with this was that in the Greek gymnasium, they exercise and do their activities in the nude. Well, in the Jewish culture, it was a much more modest culture, so that was complete no-no. So now you have a choice. Do you become Hellenist with the Greeks? If so, you got to go to the gym. Or do you not, and you don't go to the gym? So, some of them became Hellenists, so they went to the gym. So they get to the gym, and they knew before they even went, okay, we're going to have to disrobe, right? So now they get there, but then all of a sudden something else that we haven't talked about in a long time, and we don't talk about publicly much, but it goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. What was the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Well, guess what? Now we're all nude in the gym, and the Greeks and the Jews are all together, and it's quite obvious who the Jews are. And the Greeks thought it was disgusting. So, we thought we were going to be accepted by going to the gym, and now we find out we're still not accepted. 
So they have to figure out what to do with this. So some of them probably just said, okay, forget this. But the ones that wanted to be accepted and Hellenized, well, so they go, some of them, to the extent of surgeries to become, quote, uncircumcised, all right? So you got to think theologically now. And you got to think about the Jews who are having no part of this. Theologically, if you're undoing the mark of the covenant, then you're doing what to yourself? Yourself you're expelling yourself from the covenant and that is exactly how the other side the other Jews saw this situation that they were traitors to, to God to Yahweh that they were undoing the covenant and they were basically aligning themselves with this pagan culture and so that is the significance of Jason in the intertestament time period and, and what he brought in okay and so because of, of that, you can see it's Hycus the fourth up on the screen, Ptolemy's down there in Egypt still. So we're going to have the Maccabean uh, revolt that is going to take place. Now, so there was, there was many priests and other Jews that broke away from Jason, and they tried to stay local to the law. They supported the rightful high priest, Ananias III. So the party was called the Hasidim. Okay? Remember, the I am at the end of, of a Hebrew word has to do with plural so they supported this traditional path okay so the word means pious or faithful and so the modern hasidic jews use the same root word that's where the hasidic jews comes from it comes from hasidim it comes from pious or faithful so jason had ruled as high priest only three years before he was displaced by another high priest even more wicked than himself his name menelaus he offered an even larger bribe to Antiochus IV. So remember, Jason bribed his way in. Okay, so does uh, Menelaus, and the king removed Jacon, Jason, I mean, and gave uh, Menelaus the office. You know, highest highest bidder wins, right? According to Second Maccabees, if you don't know Second and First Maccabees, that's in the Apocrypha, so it's not in your Bible, but it is good historical reading. It actually is the historical information that will help you understand what took place between the Old and the New Testaments. So, uh, according to 2 Maccabees, Menelaus was not even in the tribe of Levi, but he was a Benjamite. However, some manuscripts put him in the priestly line, but not in the line of Zadok. So, Menelaus took office, and he began to plunder the temple to pay the bribe to Antiochus IV. Again, is plundering the temple going to be a good thing? No. So, Jason fled across the Jordan. Um, Menelaus arranged to have Onias III murdered. So, we don't care that you're the priest. We'll kill you, right? Saul did that one time in the Old Testament. In 169 BC, while Antiochus IV was warring in Egypt, Jason crossed the Jordan, attacked the city, trapped Menelaus, and began to rule. So Jason didn't go without a fight, right? Jason then showed bad judgment in killing many Jews, and he lost the support um, and had to flee the city once again. When Antiochus IV returned, he put Menelaus back in power. At that time, he had the walls of Jerusalem destroyed, and he slaughtered many Jews and sold many others as slaves, as in thousands. The, the Acre dominated the city for 25 years. That they, they had built this, um, this structure there before the Jews could take it. One of the most serious acts of Menelaus was helping the Syrians to build the Acre, A-K-R-A, a large castle fortress near the temple in Jerusalem. The um, Acre housed hundreds of Syrian soldiers and apostate Jews. Okay, so Menelaus 
when Menelaus, most of what I said is probably actually right there on the screen. I should have changed that earlier. So Menelaus then <clears throat> is the one that Antiochus is supporting. All right. So you got Jason and Menelaus. Those are, those are two guys that you kind of want to know. Uh, they brought in Jason brought in the gymnasium, and then you have the circumcision issue. And but what you're really dealing with underneath this is, whose are you? Are are you are you God's people who are distinct and different, or are you the people of the world, Greece in this case? All right, that is that is the battle that's actually going on. All right. So I apologize for not putting that screen up earlier because I have to go to the next screen now. So the family tree of the Maccabees, okay, because I mentioned there's a Maccabean revolt, right? So who are the Maccabees and what is this uh, Maccabean uh, revolt? So the Maccabees, all right, Mattathias, okay, that's the dad, all right, and he's got five sons, all right, Johanan, Simon, Judas, Eliezer, and Jonathan. These guys, all right, are not going to be okay with what's going on. They are definitely the traditionalists, okay? The ones who are trying to be the faithful. But they are going to lead a rebellion that is going to actually eventually lead to some independence for a period of time for Israel and uh, are very significant to the intertestament uh, time period. So let's go to this screen here. So Antiochus IV, you can see where, where he's at there. So the Maccabean revolt around 166 BC, Mattathias and the temple will be liberated, okay? So remember, they've been robbing from the temple, okay? And what is, what's going to happen? Well, with Antiochus, here's what happened. So you got Jason, Menelaus, and then um, let's just put Antiochus at the top of this because he's kind of the boss guy over all these, right? So the Jews could no longer assemble for prayer. Now think of, if you're a Jew, think about these things that are being removed. The observance of the Sabbath was suddenly forbidden. Possession of the scriptures was illegal. Circumcision was illegal. The dietary laws were illegal. Pagan sacrifices were mandated. A, a statue of Zeus, not Zeud, um, was put in the temple in December of 167 BC. And then to top it all off, the straw that broke the camel's back is the sacrificing of a pig in the temple. So, Antiochus, Jason, Menelaus, um, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't take it anymore. All right? It was just too much. Now, the Samaritan response to his laws, they pledged cooperation. They said that they were Sidonians and not Jews. They renamed their temple on Mount Gerizim, the temple of Jupiter, Hellenus. So, what you have to think about now is, when we go to the New Testament time, the Samaritans are there, all right? Why? Why is there such hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, not only were the Samaritans a group of people that had mixed and mingled with the um, the Assyrians to create their tribe of, of people, if you will, but also during this time period under Antiochus, they didn't fight Antiochus' laws. What did they do? They changed who they were. In fact, they rejected even being Jews and renamed the temple. So again, the faithful Jews in, in Israel and Judah, what, what are they going to see? They're going to see that these people are completely not faithful uh, to God. Instead, they are going to castigate them. Okay, So the kingdoms, again, 
Alright? Just keep reminding yourself of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and what's going on here. And then we move, and I want to look for just a minute at this response to Greece. So as we kind of summarize through what this looks like and what the response by, by the people before we move into the independence. Okay, so the Hasidians, okay, from Hasidim, they are the passive. The Hasmonians, they are the aggressive. So you got one that, that is going to fight and one that is not going to fight. The, uh, the passive group, the left column up there, there was a thousand killed on the Sabbath because they would not fight. Well, the other group of people, okay, which are going to become the Hasmonians, the, the Maccabees, etc., um, they're like, no way, no way. This, this is not going to go down this way. So just because we're on the Sabbath and we're supposed to be resting, they're going to take advantage of that and kill us. And so they say, no, it's okay to defend yourself on the Sabbath. So back in the first column again. So the passive group gets divided into two sets of people who are not in the Old Testament but show up as major actors, particularly one of them, in the New Testament. The Pharisees, they're the mainstream people. They have the people power, okay? So um, P on Pharisee for people power. Remember that, okay? The synagogues. Next question. Maybe, but I'm just trying to help you remember who they are. Pharisees have people power, okay? So the synagogues, and this, they are separatists within society, okay? Now, the Essenes of the New Testament, they're separatists also, but here's what they do. And this is the same battle that, that uh, followers of God still face today. We argue over how do you um, be a witness to God. Do you leave society and go off by yourself and be a witness, right? Um, that's, for instance, what uh, the Amish people try to do, right? Or you stay in society and be a witness within the society, okay? The Pharisees stay in. The Essenes, they leave, all right? Qumran is also noted there. So the caves of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, are often associated with the Essenes and the group of people who tried to stay faithful to God um, in this time period, but they did not do it by staying in the city. The city was so corrupt they figured that we need to leave. We, we can't be a faithful witness here. we got to go. The Pharisees, nope, we got to stay here and be a light. So that, both of those are on the passive side. Neither of them are picking up swords. Neither of them are doing guerrilla warfare. In contrast, on the right side, the Hasmoneans, the aggressors, um, they fought the Seleucids, okay? The Maccabees, which we're going to talk about next, the, they defeated the Greeks. They recaptured Jerusalem in 165 B.C. They, they get the temple rededicated, and the Feast of Hanukkah is celebrated. They gain independence from the Seleucids eventually. So everybody benefits. In the New Testament, they show up as the Zealots. Now here's the funny thing. Who is in Jesus' little band of 12? Zealots. Yeah, you got Zealots and Pharisees. So Jesus took these opposing groups, the, the passive Pharisee all right, and the aggressive zealot, and he's got them together as part of his 12. So they were the warriors. Yeah, I call them the Jewish ninjas. All right? So they're the radical wing. Okay, The sikari means the dagger. It means the dagger. So dagger men. All right? And they became bolder as we move towards 70 AD. All right? So... This chart is very important for you to understand this time period and as far as the response to Greece, all right? I got a question. Yeah. Could you go back to the slide before, please? Uh, I have a quick question. Um, the one before. Where, what happened to, to Sander and Lais in Marcus? Because we only have Seleucid and Ptolemy. 
what happened to those other three generals? What happened to their character? Was it were they subsumed? Yep. Or yeah, eventually, yep. All the warring. Okay. Yep. Remember, even even before you got down to just the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, what did I say? That was like seven years of warring right. be, before we got to two main ones. So that's what's happening all through that time period. They just swallowed them up and say, oh, okay. Yep, so eventually it becomes they just, their land just the main two. Yep, okay. yep. All right, so, so a time period of independence, right? About 167 to 63, because in 63, Rome comes on the scene. So for a relatively brief, brief period of time, okay, they have a time of independence under Jewish dynasty, okay? Um, during the earlier period, they were under threat from the more powerful kingdom of Syria, and later, um, they're subservient to Rome, okay? So, so you are saying that they're a nation again? For that years? They have independence, yeah, for about, um, yeah, 70 or so years, give or take. No, it's, I mean... It varies in that time as far as how much. At first, it's not complete independence. So we'll see that as we go through this. So you can see, so here's our summary. So I think this is the uh, third. I told you I divided the world powers chart into three portions. I think this is the third portion of it. So 167 to 63, okay, is the independence under the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees, okay? Um, Hanukkah comes up, as we mentioned earlier. And then I think I put this chart again when we get to the Roman time period because the bottom portion of the chart has to do with Rome. But I want to talk right now about the, the Maccabees for a moment. Uh, the timeline on the screen you can see is divided into what's going on in Egypt, Judea, and East Rome. So at the East Rome portion you can see the, the Seleucids are there. Under Judea though, look at the middle of the screen, right at the top of it, and you've got the Maccabees and the Hasmonean. And that's the time period that we're looking at right now, okay? And down at the bottom, you, you have Egypt, all right? So the Maccabees, okay? Modin was a village about 20 miles um, northwest of Jerusalem, 10 miles east of the provincial district capital, Lydda, where Syrian troops were stationed, okay? Um, emissary of Antiochus came to Modin to enforce regulations, and Mattathias killed him and the Jewish priest that attempted to offer the sacrifice. So we mentioned earlier that they made them do pagan sacrifices, okay? And what happens is they go to this village, and the priest is about to do the sacrifice. And standing next to him is the representative uh, from Antiochus. And kind of like, I don't know if it's an exact parallel, but do you remember the story in the Old Testament of uh, Phineas? who came, and, and there was a guy with a midnight woman, and they were going to have sex and at the tent, and Phineas come, and he puts a spear through them both, right? And he ends the plague. Okay, I don't know if we want to make a complete parallel, but that's kind of what this guy's probably thinking, at least, when he does. So, as they are going to offer the sacrifice, Mattathias kills him and the priest because he viewed it as complete sacrilege, okay? So... You got Modin and Mattathias, M&M, okay? And, well, the third M, this is the Maccabees, all right? So who are the Maccabees? Think Modin, the village, and Mattathias, the man, okay? So he took his five sons and his other loyal Jews, and he fled to the mountains. Why? Well, because he knows the troops are going to be coming, okay? He just killed the representative of Antiochus. So guerrilla warfare ensues, including Sabbath day, Okay? Mattathias died shortly thereafter, but he appointed Judas, his third son, to lead. And this is where the term Maccabees come from. Maccabee means hammer. 
And he gets it from the fact that Judas hammered out the enemy. He was a hammer. He beat him. He pounded him. And so they become known as the Maccabees, the hammers. Okay? All five sons will eventually die violent deaths. Three of them will rule over Judah. So the next Maccabee that we want to talk about is Judas. He was a very capable military leader, uh, defeated many larger foes. At the Battle of Emmaus in 165, he defeated armies of three different generals. Antiochus IV was off fighting in the east, so Judas took control of Judea, except for the Syrians stationed at the Acre. Um, in 162, the Syrians came, and one brother was killed at Eleazar. Antiochus V and, and Lysias remained, or reclaimed the temple area, but did not interfere with the Jewish worship. Maybe they learned something, I don't know. In the same year, Demetrius, a rival for Syria, captured and executed Antiochus V and sent his general to control Judea. Uh, Malaeus executed and installed the new high priest, Alchemist, from the line of Aaron. Alchemist and Bacchides soon execute many Jews and support Hellenism. Even the Hasidim leaders were killed. Those are the passive ones. In 161, Bacchides attacked Judas in the mountains and Judas died. So three brothers fled to Tekoa. That's where Amos is from, under leadership of Jonathan. All right, and so you can see on this map here, this is a map of the revolt that's going on. This is a close-up, okay, of the area of Judea. Notice the, the Dead Sea and how, how zoomed in we are. Okay, so you can see all the skirmishes, okay, um, of the battle zones that are up there on the screen. All right, the revolt uh, continues. Um, this is uh, not zoomed in enough for you to be able to read that or us to really uh, dig into it. And we don't have time anyway. So Jonathan, for the next 10 years, he rebuilds a support base. His brother John is killed in a skirmish. All right. So by about 150 BC, he's the primary ruler in Judah. Okay. Not counting the Acre again. Remember, that's where the soldiers were, were kept. They had built that there. So he's also the high priest. So he sent messages to Rome wanting to be friends with them. In 142, uh, Syrian rulers um, are, are grappling with power. And one of them, Tryphon, tricked Jonathan and captured him and 1,000 of his men. Okay, this would be 1,000. 1,000 of his men and killed him. So only Simon is left out of the brothers, out of the five brothers. So Simon makes an alliance with Demetrius. That was Tryphon's contender. So there's these two guys, Tryphon and Demetrius II. They were contending for leadership in Syria. So in 142, Demetrius officially granted independence to Judea, um, which means no taxation. The next year, he drove the Syrian garrison out of the Acre. They tore it down and built the Hasmonean palace in its place. Simon is given the title leader and high priest forever, until the prophet comes, by the Hasidim. The descendants of Onias III had moved to Egypt at this time, or by this time. Therefore, they're out of the priesthood. So the Hasmonean dynasty begins, um, named after their ancestor Hasmon or Asmoneus. In 135 BC, Simon and two of his sons are murdered by his son-in-law, and Simon's third son, Hyrcanus, escapes. Now, I know there's a lot of names here, and we're not done with the names. Um, so... You just need to keep the big picture in view, okay? Um, this is probably one of the, I don't know, most challenging classes as far as the amount of historical data. I mean, you're, we're covering thousands of years in, in all these different empires. So 
Like literally, I mean, there's no way to keep every bit of it straight. So you got to just focus on uh, the big pictures. You got to know who the Maccabees are and why they're important. Um, you need to know, you know, what what happened to led to them. Like they they would be nobodies, except they were aggressive. And the uh, Antiochus was forcing these pagan sacrifices. So what one of the things that we've repeatedly seen this morning is that the um, the oppressor, well, the the empire who took control, they repeatedly forced um, things related to the temple and religion on them. This is one of the reasons, probably because they learned that oftentimes later on they try not to do that. Um, Rome did make some violations, but they they tended to not be quite quite as much. So. You, you push in people's religion. Even now you know it, right? What are the two things you don't talk about at Thanksgiving? Politics and religion, right? Right. And not that you should go by that. I don't, I don't buy that. But anyways, you know the phrase. You're right. This is why. All right? It causes wars, right? <laughs> so, um, so, Simon. He, uh, let's see, did I finish this? Yes. So his, his sons were murdered, okay? So th this is the, the timeline again. So Mattathias and his five boys, okay? And so Judas finally recognized as a free state, but this this is the summation of the, the end of the five boys. And so that's going to lead to um, John Hyrcanus. So you can see from the, the chart that Simon has Judah, John, and another Mattathias. Do we so, know all the five leaders of the sons? No. So John Hyrcanus becomes a leader. Um, Samaria, Galilee, and Edumia become conquered, and the problem is forced conversions of the conquered people. Um, you know, forced conversions are just never a good idea. Um, the Crusaders tried it. The Muslims tried it. Um, they tried it here. Uh, Antiochus tries it. Um, it doesn't work, because how can you force faith? You can't. You can't force faith, right? It's good. It's internal. You can't force it. All you can force is some external um, obedience. And the people that are completely convicted of their faith, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay, they're not going to bend. Okay. So, anyways, that is something that we should learn from this history. You know, you don't know history. You repeat the same mistakes, right? Yeah, what, what, what should you learn? If any of you are ever a president, okay? <laughs> like, you can't force conversions, right? All right, so remember me if you're a president. So, um, <laughs> that includes you, Robert. You no, sir, I'm Jamaican. I right. want to be president. So, um, all right, this is Mount Gerizim. A uh, staircase from the 2nd century B.C. leading up to the Samaritan Temple on the top, top of it. Maybe I should have put this back when we talked about how the Samaritans had changed the name and stuff. Um, but anyways, so that's what, what that's what this is. The two Jewish parties that, that we talked about, the Hasidim, and, uh, which are the, the pious ones, at least the Pharisees, and then the Hellenists, the Greeks, which we'll talk about a little more, at least to the Sadducees, okay? So Aristobulus. So Aristobulus comes from John Hyrcanus, all right? Aristobulus and Alexander. Um, Aristobulus becomes high priest and king. He, is imp he imprisoned his mother and his brothers, and he reigns for a year. Um, and then 
the, the family tree continues here. You can see it right there. You have uh, Salome, Alexander, and then at the bottom, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. Uh, again, the family trees are here for your it's primarily. All right. And so at this point, um, the Maccabean kingdom is looking something like that, um, which without the, the close-up, um, I mean, I, I can't read it, and I definitely can't remember whatever the colors meant. So um, you can reference this if you need it at some point in the future on, on the PowerPoint when you download it. All right. The Hellenistic cities are also... Uh, listed here. The um, the value of this map is to show you the various cities that became Hellenized and then you can uh, correlate that with your New Testament studies and begin to understand why some of the things happen where they happen and it's related to what happened in this intertestament time period. Okay. Um, first Maccabees is a book that I mentioned. It's in the Apocrypha. There's first and second Maccabees that are important especially for uh, actually, I think there's four of them, first, second, third, and fourth. But first and second are, are very valuable for understanding what takes place between the Old and the New Testaments. Um, and in uh, some of my high school classes in the past, I made them read it. They were like, what is this? Anyways. Um, so that, that's going to bring us up to Rome, okay? So the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom predicted in Jan Daniel, both chapters 2 and 7, was approaching its great power during the New Testament era. By the time the Romans took control of Israel, they had spent several centuries growing from a local regional power to the most powerful empire in the world. Um, one of the things that still amazes me as we look at all these empires is how much territory that they were able to actually control. Um, I mean, it's, it's really almost mind-boggling. So, the, the Roman world, okay? Um, I don't know how do you get rid of that little... I thought about it, but I don't know. It's a setting that I turned on earlier. Just hit enter, maybe? And uh, that's, that's what I hit. And it didn't do it. And I don't know what the plus button is. But I can't read my first word up there. So No other state. There you go. No other, no other state fills so large a place in the history of the world as Rome. Um, so... That, that's a, a pretty bold statement to make. Um, you know, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, Pax means peace. Um, I think with Persia, we also mentioned, if I didn't, um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, there, there was a peace, Pax, also uh, related to, to Persia. Remember, they were one of the more tolerant. They let the people go back home. So, anyways, uh, the Pax Romana, the peace, um, this achievement was made possible by geography and able diplomacy, a generalship, organization, government, and character. All of that coming together. Um, the Roman genius, for example, is best shown in the creation of, a, of the body of law, which for its completeness and excellence must be considered one of the greatest legislative works of the human race. After many centuries of development, it is true the, the empire declined and finally fell into pieces. But from the fragments, great modern states such as England, France, and Italy have grown, and its civilization um, in a modified form has passed into modern life. So I've actually often argued that, um, you know, people argue that America was, was born as a, a Christian nation. Um, I argue that America is a Greco-Roman nation with a sprinkling 
of Judeo-Christianity. Um, we are heavily based upon uh, Greek and Roman structure, philosophy, etc. And then there's a sprinkling of Judeo-Christianness to it. So here is the, the chart again that I mentioned to you earlier. And so we've already covered the top portion with the independence movement, and now we're down at the Roman portion. So from 63 on and following, okay, into the New Testament time period, which obviously we're not going to cover the New Testament time period. Um, you do have, however, in the bottom portion of this, the third section, uh, you have the Roman rulers, and you have uh, one unique thing about them that you can refer back to. And remember, this is on the Microsoft Word document that is uploaded for you as well. So uh, you can just print that one-page document and have it for your notes, all right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. You should remember, this is the third part. All of the ones that said world powers for the PowerPoint I divided it into three parts, and I put it in the appropriate place, Greece, Independence, and Rome. But it's all, it's all one document um, on Microsoft Word that I've already uploaded to the BCF site. Alright, so who's this guy? Yeah, so Pompey, right? So the, the Roman era is upon us. So he defeats Antiochus, alright? He, um, he clears the seas of piracy. He conquers in Syria and Jerusalem. He orders Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II to stop fighting. Okay, this is, this is where we're going to get involved with Jerusalem. They don't stop fighting, okay? So he marches in, and he makes them. And Antipater was appointed as ruler, okay? If they listened, he probably never would have entered into the land. And then he, he dictates the territorial arrangements. Judah was placed under Syria and was called Judea. So now we find, where does the phrase Judea come from? It comes from the Roman occupation, okay? We talked last class period about where the word uh, Jew comes from, right? And that is, even though it becomes a, it's a, a Hebrew word, that's during the what time period and whose influence? Persia. The Persians, okay? So we saw that and, um, and uh, Yehud, right? And now we see the Judea from Pompeii. Also, you'll see that the Greek cities and the Samaritans um, are given a measure of independence. And the Decapolis that shows up in the Gospels so much on the, the eastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee there, um, that is a federation of Greek cities that is formed during this time period as well. Hyrcanus is then reinstalled as high priest, and um, Antipater is still influential, though he does not have an official uh, position. All right. His conquest, okay, and his territorial changes are shown on this chart here. You can see the Samaritan area in yellow, uh, Judea and Idumea are in the purple area. Over on the right side, um, to the east, remember, Transjordan is the Decapolis. Galilee is up north, okay, just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. You can also see in the Decapolis how far south it extends um, hanging down there, almost like, uh, what, what is that, Brazil or South America or? Africa, whatever, anyways. Moving on. All right. So a close-up of the area for you. Uh, Judea, Samaria, and Decapolis. So this is going to be the areas that 
come up frequently in the Gospels, okay? Um, you know, Jesus has to pass through Samaria, he says. This is the area. Jesus goes to the Decapolis. This is the area that we're talking about. Um, so, he incorporated Palestine <coughs> into the Roman province of Syria and uh, appoints Hyrcanus II to be ethnarch and high priest, which he holds from 63 to 40 BC. He also granted, as I mentioned, the semi-autonomy to Samaria and the Greek cities. Uh, Galilee, though, remains under the Jewish jurisdiction. So the real power at this point, okay, in Judea was its Potter II. All right, he's entrusted with the actual administration of the district. Okay, this here is just a, a picture of the Temple of Zeus um, and the Jordan area that is part of the Decapolis. All right, so you see the big temple area the remnants that are there. So, it's Potter. All right, now, as procurator, okay, so as, as the, the man leading this area, okay, what we have to understand is how um, Julius Caesar and these other aspects are going to come in to play here. Julius Caesar was the administrative genius who just defeated the Gauls and England, and his old ally, Pompey. So they used to be buddies, all right? Um, but Pompey now has conquered the whole east. They engaged in civil war starting in 49 BC. Okay? Hyrcanus and Antipater picked the wrong side. They picked Pompey after all. He's the one that put him in power, right? Well, that's not who wins. Caesar wins. In 48 BC, he defeats Pompey at, at Pharsalus, the east coast of Greece. Pompey escapes to Egypt. Caesar pursues him to Egypt with a small army. Egyptians kill Pompey. This was a mistake on Caesar's part. He didn't know what he was getting into. They, the Egyptians kill Pompey, and they capture Caesar and all of his soldiers. He didn't bring very many. A thousand is not a lot. So um, what happens is Antipater comes to the rescue with a large army um, of soldiers. So he comes and rescues him. In gratitude, Caesar gives him the procuratorship of Judea in 47 BC, and he adds to Judea several territories that uh, Pompey had taken away. Antipater then appoints his two sons, Phasiel in Jerusalem, and Herod of Galilee. And that's why they're on the screen. Herod in Galilee, Phasiel in Judea. So those are the sons of who? Antipater II. And the reason he gets this is because even though he had not allied himself with Caesar, he went and rescued Caesar in Egypt. Does that make sense so far? You with me? Why would you do it? Exactly. And look what he gets out of it. He's back in charge, right? He's got the land again, right? So you uh, ally yourself with whoever is currently in charge, right? So uh, this will happen again. You'll see in a second how there's a, a flip-flop that takes place as well. So uh, Caesar also confirmed Hyrcanus' appointment as ethnarch and high priest. So both of the guys, despite the fact that they at first did not support Caesar, guess what? Now they do, and now they're in office again. All right? So then in Rome, though, you have something else. Cassius and Brutus, and then you got Mark Anthony and Octavian that runs into a little bit of a skirmish, right? So in 44 BC, Brutus and Cassius led an assassination of Julius Caesar in Rome. So Cassius, proconsul of Syria, quickly seized control of Antipater's territory. Cassius was quite tyrannical, but Antipater aided him and raised taxes for him. So again, whoever's in charge, yeah, 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 I'm your buddy. I'll, I'll work with you, all right? Just let me stay in power. The following year, 
um, he was murdered. But young Herod stepped in, executed the murderers, okay, and restored order in the territory. Remember, that it was his dad, Antipater, that was murdered. In 42 BC, Phasiel and Herod were appointed joint rulers of all of Judea. Octavian, okay, um, Julius Caesar's nephew, was a clever politician and a statesman. Mark Anthony was a very powerful general. Together they defeated Cassius and Brutus in the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. Okay? Mark Anth uh, many of Anthony's troops remained there in Philippi, and that's why Philippi becomes a Roman colony okay, and Roman citizens. That's important for New Testament also. Uh, Mark Anthony controlled the eastern part of the empire, and although Fasiel and Herod had supported Cassius, guess what? They switched allegiance. Why? Because there's a new guy in town, and they want to keep their spots. In 40 BC, the Parthians invaded Palestine and set up a ruler, Antigonus, of the house of the Hasmoneans. They captured and imprisoned Hyrcanus and Fasiel. Hyrcanus they, uh, they maimed to make him ineligible for the priesthood. Um, they bit off his ears, if I remember right, so he could no longer be a priest. Fasiel committed suicide in prison. Herod managed to escape. He fled south from Jerusalem into the desert. Then he crossed the Dead Sea and he sought refuge in Petra. When the Arabs refused protection, he moved to Alexandria and finally to Rome. In Rome, Herod made a good impression on Octavian and Anthony, who persuaded the Senate to appoint him king of the Jews. In addition, the Romans also added additional parts of Samaria and Idumea to his kingdom. So at this point, the kingdom is only theoretical because he's not actually there to control it, but they've given it to him. So this is how Herod ends up with the kingdom. Now, there's a reversal of Caesar-appointed tetrarchies under Mark Anthony. So in, in white, I have the reversal. Fasiel becomes over Galilee. Herod becomes over Judea. All right? Now, there's also, when they, when they change sides, all right, um, there's also going to be the change in alliance that has to happen. Okay? So meanwhile... Some Jews, in opposition to Herod and Phasiel, made an alliance with the Parthians and requested assistance. So the Parthians arrived in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Phasiel's captured and prison died. Hyrcanus as, uh, is captured. I mentioned his ears were bitten off, so he can't hold the high priest office. Herod, as I, as I mentioned to you, he escapes. He makes it to Rome. And so the, the Parthians had put Mattathias Antigonus, a Hasmonean, on the throne as a puppet king. When Herod returned to Palestine, he came with Roman troops, a Roman legion in 39 BC. So two years of fighting ensued, and that got him back to kingdom in 37 BC. Um, he murdered almost the entire Sanhedrin, and he married Marianne, the first, or the last, I mean, the last living Hasmonean. Anthony is in love with Cleopatra of Egypt. She's the last Ptolemy. He tried to secure Egyptian independence. Now watch what happens here. The Roman Senate and Octavius opposed him. So Octavian and Antony have a split. Herod sided with Antony, even though Cleopatra, the Ptolemy, hated him. Antony was defeated by Octavian in naval battle of Octavium of, off the west coast of Greece. Antony and Cleopatra escape and commit suicide. Herod then summoned by Octavius to appear before him and wants to know why he sided up with Antony. So here's what he says. He says, oh yeah, I completely did. In fact, if I was able to, I would have gotten over there and I would have supported him in the battle. Now, if you're 
Hmm. Octavius, you got to be thinking, wow, this guy's kind of dumb. He's standing in front of the guy that won. Um, and he's saying he would have supported the other guy. But then he said this. The same loyalty I gave to him, since he's dead, I'll give to you. So now what you got is you got, from Octavius's point of view, okay, so he's not just a complete fish. He doesn't just flip-flop. He's loyal to the end. It's like, okay, all right, I'll take his loyalty if he's going to be that loyal, right? And so that's what he does. So again, Herod, like, he's a politician, right? So he's playing it. So he's confirmed as king, and he's given more land. <clears throat> all right, so the early, um, this is the time chart. We're skipping it. So Herod the Great, all right? The death of Antipater left Hyrcanus in the position of authority, but Fasiel and Herod, as I said, uh, they're the power behind the scenes. So Herod at this time was about 30 years old, tall, handsome, curly black hair, golden skin. Um, he's in charge of all southern Syria. Cassius is defeated at Philippi and commits suicide, and Herod um, had backed him, as, as we had just uh, mentioned there. So here's Herod's temple. Okay, He rebuilt this in 520 B.C., or I mean, take that back. Zerubbabel had rebuilt this in 520 B.C. We talked about that under the Persian uh, section, right? Herod expands it, greatly expands it. He begins construction in 20 B.C. and continues it for six, till 63 A.D. Okay? We're talking over 80 years working on this temple building. Okay? It's, a, it's a massive project that he does. Um, Herod is known as a builder. That's what you want to remember. Herod is a builder. Right? Yeah, he was a madman. He's also a builder. Okay? So Herod is the builder. The Antonia Fortress. Okay? The um, Hasmoneans originally built a fortress overlooking the Temple Mount. Herod rebuilt it and named it after his friend, Mark Anthony. Now, I would be wondering, if I was ruling in Rome, why he did rename this after the dead guy that he was was with. But then again, maybe he'll build something and name it after me, right? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, it's located at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, with two sets of stairs descending to the Temple Compound. So, when there are disruptions in the Temple, where are the soldiers coming from? They're rushing out of this place. Right? So they're just housed there waiting to deal with issues in the temple. It later becomes the base of the Roman garrison, and that's where Paul was initially taken after his arrest in the temple. Okay, So the temple complex and the Antonia, you can see it here. There's the temple complex. All right? You can see up in that top, the way it's on the screen, it's on the top right. You can see the, uh, the fortress up there in the right side of the screen. All right? The model of the Antonia. Okay, this is more of a, a close-up model. You can kind of see what it would have looked like, all right? And also, um, again, this is just another view. You can see the Temple Mount, and you can also see straight on, okay, those uh, towers. That is as part of that fortress. All right, what else did Herod do? Herod, Herod also had the Herodian, okay? Um, this is the area where it was. This here is some of the interior courtyard, okay? This is like his pleasure palace, right? He had, he had multiple places that he, he had built. Uh, you can see the large circular eastern tower. This is um, another view of it. Okay, It's about seven miles south of Jerusalem. It's a fort as well as a palace. Some additional images as well. A lot of what I have left for you is images of, of Herod's um, buildings. Okay? So uh, that's, that's one of the inner towers, what, what it would have looked like there, a, a rendition of it.
another view there. All right, so not only does he have the Herodian, the Temple Complex, Antonia, um, but he also has um, Masada. That's my next slide. So Masada. Now, I, I mentioned before, it becomes very significant in the Roman um, wars with the Jews around 70 AD. Um, thousands of Jews commit suicide on top of this rock. And I told you, it was like a six-hour movie you can watch on it. So this is Masada. It wouldn't be there, though, except that Herod had built it. So that's the significance here, all right? Another one of his palaces. So you can see, I mean, just look at it. How are you going to take that thing? you got to climb up to the top first. Well, guess what? The Romans do do that. It takes them years, but they build ramps, um, and they're able to get up and conquer it, okay? So that's Masada. All right. What else does he build? This is Caesarea, okay? This is a pretty awesome undertaking. So there's no real good harbor in Israel. And so guess what? Herod builds one. Okay? Where does he so, get the water from? Well, the water's already, the water's there. What, what they don't have is this portion that he, he built here. And so you can see that what he does is he, he builds this, uh, this jutted out portion, which is going to protect it um, from the water, but it also protects it. There's only one way in. Okay? So you can't just sneak up on it, so to speak, or, or just come right in. There's only, there's only one way in. So Israel didn't have a good natural harbor, okay? 200-foot-wide breakwater to enclose the harbor was built so that you can only come in through the north. It took him 12 years to build this city, okay? You can go see the remnants of this. Look at what else he did there. Okay, the amphitheater, all right? You can still go sit there. I've been there, all right? You can see the aqueducts that he, he had to bring the water. Um, again, massive building projects. Where did he get the labor? The people. Herod's aqueduct from Mount Carmel to Caesarea. I mean, look at that. You, you can just see how it goes along the, the coastline there. Um, Where's that for? So, to bring the water. Fresh water. Um, his kingdom. Okay, here, here is the outline of the area that he controlled during his time period. And... another one of the same but here it has some problems and this is going to take us to the conclusion of our time for today um, it has been said it's kind of a play on words but it's what's there but it's better to be Herod's uh, pig than to be Herod's sons okay you can see that those are the Greek words there you can see that they're pretty closely um, spelled the difference being the, the, the two vowels in the middle there but um, Herod though financially prosperous Herod brought about much dissension in the land um, his marriage to Miriam, the last Hasmonean, was, was part of this problem. Um, assassination plots were uncovered. He became um, very uh, paranoid because of all the assassination plots. So that led to killing his two sons by Miriam, and eventually he killed her in a fit of rage. Now, supposedly he actually really loved her, and so I guess kind of regretted that later, and so that drove him kind of nuts also. Um, but that's the idea that better to be a pig, that's because he actually followed Jewish dietary laws. So he wouldn't kill a pig, but he'd kill his sons and wife. So that's where the phrase comes from. Um, he never really recovered from killing her. And then after the slaughter in Bethlehem, Herod became very sick and diseased. I'm referring to this is Herod the Great. This is the one who orders the babies killed in Bethlehem. They're up to two years old. So he ordered the murder of all the notable Jews upon his death. Um, I have, you know, read and heard previously that, you know, 
he was kind of hated, so he wanted to make sure people cried. So he was going to have a thousand people killed when he died. So at least people would be crying, even if it wasn't because he died. Um, however, those he's sick, right? So those people actually did not get killed. That didn't happen. Um, he killed his son Antipater, and he died five days later. All right. So um, you can see some of the influence of the Greeks and Romans in these tombs here. These are tombs of the sons of Hezer and, and Zechariah in the Kidron Valley. The, the Doric and the Ionic columns and the pyramid-shaped roof show the, the Greek and um, uh, Roman influences, that or e I mean Egyptian influences, that have uh, carried over into the land. And, and so that leads with the Roman Empire for the first century BC, and it looks kind of like this here. Uh, you can see the, the color coding, of course, that you see regularly on these maps as over time uh, it changes and they generally always expand uh, their kingdom. So what is the response, lastly, to Rome? Um, I would love to spend more time on this. Um, we started about a half hour late, but I want to get us finished here. Um, the response to Rome. This, um, if you have a really big takeaway, like this chart sums up a really big takeaway for you for understanding the New Testament. And again, this is on a Word document. So you can print it from the PowerPoint, but this is also a Word document that I have uploaded. You have the pro and the anti, right? Pro-Rome or anti. The Sadducees were pro-Rome. They have the political power. Anti-Rome is the Pharisees. They have the people power, okay? So what I told you before, remember it? Well, it's on this chart. Um, some information and differences about the Sadducees and Pharisees are, are listed there for you. The Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife or angels or rewards and punishment. Um, they're descended from the Hellenists. They're fewer than the Pharisees. They only accept the written Torah. If you don't know what I mean by that, make sure you're here next week. We're going to talk about um, the oral and the written Torah, the Mishnah, and all that. Um, they believed in free will, considered themselves to be conservative, held positions of high priest, they ruled the Sanhedrin. And opposite to that is the Pharisees. They believed in the sovereignty of God, afterlife, angels, demons. Um, they accept both the written and the oral Torah. Um, they were reclusive, legalistic, did not partake in um, corrupted temple worship. Um, they adhered to the tradition. And then you've got your groups of the tax collectors and the zealots. The tax collectors obviously were pro-Rome. They worked for Rome. The zealots hated Rome. They tried to kill them. And the Sanhedrin and the scribes on the bottom. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish council um, from the council of elders who worked with Rome to maintain law and order. And then the scribes, they copied the Hebrew Bible, they ran synagogues and schools, they became experts in the law. And so when Jesus goes up against the Sanhedrin, those are the pro-Rome people. When he's up against the scribes, those are anti-Rome. When he's up against the Sanhedrin and the scribes, the enemies have come together against their new common enemy, Jesus. Jesus is also able to unify in a different way when he gets tax collectors and zealots both to be disciples in the middle column there. Again, Jesus is sometimes pitted against the Sadducees or the Pharisees. They try to trap him, and he'll answer the question in such a way that suddenly the Sadducees and the Pharisees get to arguing about afterlife issues and almost forget their original problem with Jesus. So this is one of the charts that I recommend um, that you look at. I will take stuff off this chart for your, your exam. Yes, you want you want to know. This is just a picture of Qumran. This is the Qumran caves where they found uh, the scrolls, right? So.
I'll end it with, with this chart here. So um, I uploaded a lot of stuff for this week. Um, if you've already looked, you know it. You, you want to know the responses to Greece and Rome. You want to understand how God's people responded to what happened when the Greeks and the Romans came in. And then you want to know, you know some of the key highlights and understand why the Maccabees are important in this scenario. Um, it's related to the independence. It's also related to how they rose up and they refused to um, continue to sit under um, this, this sacrilege that Antiochus was imposing. Um, your, your, uh, your triple, I'm making this up on the spot, but your, your unholy trinity, you know, Antiochus, Jason, and Menelaus. All right? The, those three, they, they brought in the gymnasium. Uh, which led to these these conflicts, and they brought in the mandatory um, sacrificing and the forbidding of all the Jewish things that made God's people unique. So, does that make sense? All right. Um, any other questions? Mike, no, 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 just stop talking. I was next week. Yes, we have class. The paper limited time is eleven. A.M. or P.M.? 11.55 P.M.? P.M. Yeah. P.M. always. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Yeah, 30, yeah. If, oh, then, yeah. Next 